Hi, everybody. This is uh, Gad Saad, another fantastic guest for you today. We met uh, earlier in November for the first time in person at uh, Stanford University. I've got Professor Eric Kaufman. How are you doing, Eric? Great. I'm delighted to be here, Gad. Oh, I'm delighted to have you. So let me just uh, read out some of your uh, key biomarkers. You're a professor of politics at the University of London, which if you want, we can talk about what's your favorite uh, uh, London soccer team. Your research interest, this is straight out of uh, Wikipedia, so I hope it's right, is Orangism from Northern <laughs> Ireland, not to be confused with uh, the Dutch uh, soccer team who also wear are very famous for wearing orange. You're also an expert on nationalism and political and religious demography. I think we'll probably get into all that. You're part of a group of dissident academics that sounds scary and ominous, <laughs> who speak out against wokeism and academia. Some of your authored books, I won't mention all of them, and there's a whole bunch of edited ones. They include Rise and Fall of Anglo-America, The Decline of Dominant Ethnicity in the United States. This is almost 20 years ago, 2004. The Orange Order, A Contemporary Northern Irish History, 2007. Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth, Demography and Politics in the 21st Century in 2010. And uh, your most recent book, a few years ago, White Shift, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities. And just before we came online, you said that you're working on your latest book, which we can talk about. Did I cover some of the key markers? You want to add anything there? No, you hit the high points. I mean, I have, uh, you know, more recently done more of these think tank reports that touch on things like critical race theory in schools and public opinion on culture wars questions, which is all coming into the new book, which is really going to be on more on the... Uh, origin and development of wokeness and the politics of it okay uh so that you i think you had said offline that you're working on your last chapter and then you'll be sending it off to the publisher so when would be the expected uh you know expected time of arrival for that book <laughs> yeah i mean i think we're, we're talking either summer or january 2024 so it's it's not clear whether i'll make the summer cutoff um, as you know, these publishers operate on these long lead times, yeah. um, you know, so I'm with a sort of a, a publisher called Forum, which are a sort of an unwoke imprint, if you like, of Swift Press. So uh, they, they're a bit more open minded, I guess you could say, than I was with Penguin for my last book. And but Penguin has changed, I think. Um, and it's not as not as easy to get in there as it might have been. Well, you know, it, it it's interesting that you say this because uh there are several reasons why I'm with my current publisher. I've not published, well, the second one is coming out with them now. The Parasitic Mind was with Regnery and my most recent book, the, which is coming out in July, The Sad Truth About Happiness, uh, is also with Regnery. And uh, originally when uh, you know I wanted to work with them was precisely because they've become uh, the sort of unwoke key publisher. Uh, and especially for the parasitic mind, where I was, you know, drilling down on all of these parasitic ideas, I knew that it would be difficult to publish such a book with, you know, in a publishing industry where everybody is parasitized by this nonsense. So if you're ever, I don't want to be the uh, the promoter <laughs> of this publisher, but if you're ever looking for a good home, they're great. And once I started working with them, uh, I've only learned to appreciate them more. They, they, they. I don't know if they, they have a mechanism by which they pick everybody, but everybody from the copy editor to the editor to the acquisition editor to the to the publicist are just beautiful people. Have, have you ever worked with them? or have you I ever... haven't. I know about them. 
Um, I mean, I also know there are new imprints, say, from HarperCollins, or some of the majors have more, call it conservative imprints now. But again, some of the one of the problems is some of those imprints just want to publish, you know, Sarah Palin's autobiography. <laughs> so it's it's tough to get that sweet spot where you you have sort of serious intellectual content. But I think uh, I think it's starting to develop. I mean, this is kind of an encouraging sign that the publishing industry there's enough dissident activity and same with agents that I think publishing can actually continue to allow an ungate ungated uh, route for for people with dissident ideas to get into the get into a wider audience right now your <clears throat> excuse me your forthcoming book is it meant for is it a trade book is it meant for the masses or is it under is it an academic book <clears throat> yeah so my last uh, I haven't done an acad a proper academic book for a while my last two were trade books and this is also a trade book uh so yeah I mean it makes such a difference as you know to get a proper marketing team behind you and and you know, they just do a so much better job I mean I I have published quite a few academic books you know you you get stuck on the catalog and you get priced at a ridiculous amount yeah. you know <laughs> well this book right in the, well the, these two books are both academic books this was my first yeah. book, The Evolutionary Basis of Consumption. This is an edited book, Evolutionary Psychology and the Business Sciences. I think that one, uh, the going price was $189. Uh, yeah. So yeah. you're basically saying <laughs> only university libraries are going to be interested in purchasing it. Uh, what what? Now that you've published several trade books, have you been bitten by the, the sort of the populist bug, if you'd like, trying to target... <laughs> Or do you still retain an interest in, in going back to the roots and publishing books that will be read by four people and your mom? <laughs> I I still publish. What I do is I publish that kind of stuff in, in journal form. Yeah. Um, and I just save my, my book writing energies for a more popular market. Uh, partly, it, it's not the money, which we know is not great, even in trade presses, unless you are somebody extremely famous, uh, which you are more than I am. But I, I think it's simply that um, it get read, it's get, gets read by a lot more people yeah. because they actually put effort into marketing and they don't just sort of say, oh, well, libraries will pick it up. So at some ridiculous price, we'll sell 800 copies. <laughs> but are you, okay, so you've, you've made the decision to reserve, as you said, your book writing energies for the trade mm -hmm. books, but- your academic stuff, okay. You're 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 looking for the journal outlets. Have you lost some of the 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 spunk for publishing in peer-reviewed journals because you now can publish books that can be read by a lot more people? Or no, are you able to compartmentalize and you still love both equally? <laughs> I don't know about loved. I mean, especially if we're talking about me here. I think I, I've certainly got a lot of detractors uh, in academia, but. Uh, you know, what I would say is anything controversial, I won't bother going into a journal because it's not impossible to get in, but it's very difficult. Um, so things that are uncontroversial, I'll publish in a regular journal. And it, But anything that's going to be controversial. So I've done a, a number of surveys of professors, for example, on free speech, on attitudes to not hiring a conservative, these kinds of things. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't try and publish that in a journal. Now, it's not to say it's impossible, but um, I just think it's more satisfying with the amount of limited time we have on the earth to sort of <laughs> go for, uh, you know, write in, in venues that are likely to sort of reach a wider audience. But, you know, 
when you said, oh, you know, I wouldn't try to publish controversial and I put it in quotes because it's hardly yeah. controversial, but you say that in not in a flippant manner, but that this is the way it is. But yet, if you take a step back, it is extraordinarily ominous that in the 21st century, two professors are sitting and basically saying, yeah, of course, there are gatekeepers that can decide what we publish and where. And, oh, no, science is not a unbiased, objective thing. But yet we've been, we've been inculcated so much with the fact that that's, in, in French, you say de rigueur, that's what's accepted, right. that you just throw it away as a sentence when it should stop us and sort of make us lament the, the status of academia today, no? Absolutely. I mean, I think that the the sort of what I would call cultural socialism, some might call wokeness, but this has sort of distorted the entire academic enterprise away from the truth-seeking mission. And so certain in certain areas, it'll do a good job where that's uncontroversial. But when any anytime you get near anything controversial, then no, it's simply going to give you a distorted picture of the truth. I think there's different categories. So I think you have uh, certain subjects that are unfashionable, you know, classical architecture, military history, the classics. You know, these are just things that aren't going to get investment. They're not going to get tenure lines. And then you have the things that cross the the red lines, right? So if you really want to study and publish about wokeness, if you really want to look at, uh, you know, the, the cultural sources of pay gaps, whether they be racial or gender. I mean, that is simply across a red line. It's going to be very difficult to publish. And I don't know if you saw uh, Arthur Sakamoto, who who did a, a podcast with Heterodox Academy some years back, talking about what it's like trying to publish the result that Asian Americans aren't experiencing a discrimination penalty in the labor market. He just couldn't get that paper published tweaked a few things, dropped a few things that were controversial and in it went right away. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I want to sort of eventually talk about you, your trajectory of how you, you became quoted a dissident academic, but uh, it, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll start off with mine uh, to, to your point about, you know, uh, having resistance of, you know, editors publishing your work. I first realized that there was a problem in academia before I, I got into the, the culture war as they're understood now, you know, the greater culture wars. The fact that I was trying to Darwinize the business school, right? It's trying to, so my, my, my academic work is at the intersection of evolutionary psychology and the behavioral sciences in general and consumer behavior in particular. The idea being that you can't really study uh, anything in, in, in business, whether it be employer psychology or employee psychology or consumer psychology without recognizing that the minds of those agents has been honed by evolutionary mechanisms. And that was considered, still considered outlandish. I mean, what are you talking <laughs> about? I mean, human beings are not biological beings under the purview of evolutionary psychology. And so that's when I first realized that you know, otherwise supposedly very smart academics could be parasitized. It was in the context of trying to push through my papers in these journals that in many cases would desk reject it. And then of course, eventually I realized that there was a much bigger problem. What was, so in the same way that I just kind of traced my, you know, and very quickly the synopsis of my trajectory as a culture war member, what was your trajectory? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I, I I think I've been aware, you know, I did my master's degree in sociology at London School of Economics 
we're talking the early mid 90s, you know, I've been aware the entire time that there's a big ideological slant to academia. And so I think probably subliminally, I was somewhat in the closet. I mean, I suppose the issues that I was talking about are particularly what we would call majority group ethnicity or majority group identity. And this question of um, can majority groups have ethnic identity? And I think the answer is yes to that. Um, but in particular, if you ever get into a, a conversation around the validity, the normative validity of this, it's always treated as a sort of awful thing, but without any real, uh, what I guess, what would you say, so consistent approach to this. Now, it's just starting to change. Well, only at the fringes is they are people grudgingly now starting to accept that, well, actually, there may be this thing called majority group identity uh, and maybe it's it's not entirely something that's equivalent to Nazism, but I think for the longest longest time, that equation was made. I mean, you know, how could you possibly have something like, uh, you know, an ethnic identity if you're in a in a in a Western country? And 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 ultimately, this is kind of in my last book, you know, just looking at the populist revolts or the the rise of national populism since 2014 in Europe, and then with Trump and Brexit, and then looking. At places like Italy, uh, if you don't understand this aspect of, of you know, that, that there are a lot of people who have these majority group identities, they don't want to see their countries ethnically shift so quickly, uh, it, then it's going to be very hard to understand national populism. So I, I, I'm guessing I haven't uh, regrettably read, uh, right. you know, some of your <laughs> some of it's, your it's, it's very big. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know the white shift. I I can already, even without having read a single syllable <laughs> from that book, I can see what the attacks would be. So let me kind of uh, brainstorm a few attacks, and then you tell me if I'm right. So you are a white nationalist. You are part of the Great Le Replacement theory. Oh no, it's the Browning of Italy. It's the Browning of the United States of Canada, and therefore you're trying to lend scientific credence to pure nazism is this roughly what is the argument against your position yeah sort of i mean and, and i mean it's sort of odd because i'm sort of you know like you i i'm sort of jewish i've also got hispanic and asian background but but my, my point here is that you know the, the point in the book was to say there's really two things going on one is ethnic change is ultimately behind these sorts of populist uh the rise of national populism um, and and anti-immigration sentiment, and we need to have a conversation about the speed of that change, and that's perfectly legitimate in a democratic society. No one's saying we're going to have zero immigration, but you know it, there has to be some discussion about the cultural side of immigration. Um, now, the the second half was much less controversial; it was more about uh, assimilation and the emergence of mixed race majorities. Uh, but the first part of the book, yeah, I think some people would would say, you know, how could you even talk about something like white identity without condemning it outright as an awful thing? And, I, you know, but the point is, really, if you look at surveys and if somebody identifies strongly as Irish or Italian in the U.S., they're going to identify str more strongly as white, just as if they identify strongly as Chinese or Thai, they'll identify more strongly as Asian. Uh, it's It's not that mysterious. It's just a sort of higher level pan-ethnic identification. It's, it's not, not necessarily more toxic either. I mean, you know, of course, anything taken to its extreme is going to be toxic, but there is this sense that 
of what I call uh, asymmetrical multiculturalism. Ethnicity is fantastic for minorities and it's horrendous for majorities. I don't think that case can can be sustained ultimately over time. And I think it's breaking down. So that was kind of part of the, the theme in that book. Uh, so let's see if I can link you know, some of your arguments to, you know, my evolutionary lens. So here's one possible thing. You know, we are coalitional thinkers. We view the world as blue team versus red team. So it's a very easy argument to make that there's an innate proclivity to view the world as us versus them. So any inherent tribal, you know, coalitional thinking is just part of the architecture of the human mind. Would, would that be one line of argument where we can marry some of the positions that you take within an evolutionary paradigm? Yeah, I think so. And, and I think evolutionary psychology has a lot to say to for the study of nationalism and ethnicity and all of these sorts of conflicts. Now, you can, of course, it's, the big question is, you know, how are those dividing lines? Are they party versus party, Democrat, Republican? Right. Are they going to be ethnic, you know, white versus non-white, et cetera? Uh, and and that, that's where there's no doubt that social construction and how boundaries are framed absolutely matters. Um, you know, one of the classic questions is, is always ethnicity versus class. You know, which of these identities is going to be stronger? They're both to some degree playing on a tribal impulse but I suppose you could say when the two are equally matched, there are some people who would say, well, the one that is more closely related to a familial metaphor will tend to be more resonant uh, for, for evolutionary reasons. And I don't, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm perfectly accepting the role of society and, and assimilation and boundary change. But you're right that there is that sort of evolutionary basis, the us-them, which which is always playing. Well, there is a, a great quote, I think I cited in, uh, I can't, I guess you can't see, hold on, is it, oh, this book, in the Consuming right. Instinct, uh, by Leon Uris. Do you, are you familiar with that quote? I No, I'm not familiar, no. It's, I it's, know the author, but no. Well, basically, I mean, I'm going to completely butcher it now, but it's something like, you know, it's it's uh, it's me and my cousins versus whatever. It's me. So it 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 gets more and yes, more. Yes, I know the quote. I know the quote. Right? Me and my brother against my my cousin or something. Exactly. Like that. Right. I mean, yeah. if we're attacked by Martians, then we all become. I mean, that's not part of his quote, but it's me saying it. We all become earthlings right because now that becomes the the cue of assortment <clears throat> but to your point i mean to your earlier point about you know it depends which cue you use to create the delineation <clears throat> excuse me us versus them there was a i think this was a my first semester as a doctoral student uh, i had taken a course uh, actually this is this was the course where i first was exposed to evolutionary psychology it was a advanced social psychology course with a social psychologist by the name of uh, Dennis Regan. And I, I, I'm i almost certain that it was in his course where uh, he had talked about a study. And and I, I don't think I've ever found the exact... I, I found references to similar studies, but the specific one that I'm going to mention, maybe you'll now, maybe you'll know what the reference is. So it was a study... It's going to speak about the 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 sort of the the random nature of how you can cause people to assort on completely inconsequential cues. So you bring in people into the waiting room in the laboratory, 
and you put a sticker on them, either a blue sticker or a red sticker, and you say, oh, I'm just going to identify you for some other purpose later. Oh, I'll, I'll come back in a few minutes and then we'll we'll go on to, to the real experiment. Of course, the real experiment is to see how the people in the waiting room are now going to start interacting with each other as a function of this completely random cue that you've used, the blue versus red. And what ends up happening is that the blue the blue dot people start talking to each other and the red dot people start talking to each other. And of course, at this point, it doesn't matter if I'm gay or straight, if I'm tall or short, if I'm uh, Jewish or atheist, all that matters is this cue of a storm. And that speaks exactly to your point. So is it, I mean, that makes it seem almost that there's a cavalier way about the manner by which we assort. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I actually think, so So there's different strands of evolutionary psychology. So there is an argument that says people you share more genes with, I mean, in the evolutionary race, you're going to cooperate with those who you share more genes with. Therefore, you know, you read cues that are related to genetic relatedness and et cetera. Okay. So that, that would suggest that all other things being equal, if one set of markers is totally superficially constructed and the other is in some way perceived as being more related to genetic relatedness, the second one will win out in a in a battle. But of course, rarely are these two things, rarely do they have equal social power. So clearly a, a an Oriental Jew and an, a European Jew are going to feel closer, even if genetically, perhaps the Oriental Jew and the Arab might be close. I don't know. But um, so there are many factors that go into how these tribes are made up. I mean, I should I should say just um, in the book, I in both both my first book and also this recent book, I'm I'm interested also in the the way ideology intersects with it. So a lot of the things that you talk about, you know, the rise of the of the left, particularly the cultural left, which I trace back to the the 1910s, but really post 1960s, uh, really changes the culture. And I think this sort of enters into all of these debates around demo- demographic change and majority ethnicity and it's a you know that is really where I, my interest lies at the intersection of this sort of idea big ideological shift which you know when people talk about wokeness i always say i don't think this is a new development it's just a slight acceleration of something that was already very present in our culture going back to certainly the mid-1960s what are your views since i mean uh b- because you you just sort of uh, place the timestamp on when some of these ideas might have arisen. And you're you're exactly correct that some of them go back nearly a hundred years. So for example, cultural relativism uh really started with Franz Boas, the, right. the the anthropologist, and that's going back, you know, many, many years. Whereas of course postmodernism really accelerated probably about 40, 50 years ago. Uh but what are your thoughts if you're comfortable sharing them? I mean mm. we should be we can critique right. other colleagues' papers or works, uh, there was a, um, at the Stanford conference, one of the plenaries was by Jonathan Haidt, where he, uh, you know, was pushing the idea that, you know, there's something magical that, or not magical, but there's kind of a, a, a triggering uh, inflection point that happened in 2014 <laughs> that really accelerated the proliferation of these woke ideas. I'm, I'm assuming you're familiar with the, with the premise since you were there, uh, what are your thoughts on it? And uh, let's see. Let's see. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm more of a, I take a more sort of cultural sociological approach than a psychological approach. So height places a lot of emphasis on child rearing, people, kids not being allowed to play, plus the impact of social media. 
Um, whereas what I place more emphasis on is the role of cultural left ideology in breaking out of academia. Um, there's a paper by a, a guy called David Rosado, who I've also collaborated with looking at big data, I think 175 million academic abstracts and 25 million news articles. And what you could see is talk about racism and, and sexism and homophobia was already, I mean, those subjects were being studied very intensively already in the sort of 70s, 80s, 90s. Uh, but what happens in the 2010s is suddenly the media attention converges with academia because what happens is you get the newspapers no longer running a classified ads-based model but moving to a clickbait uh pay-for-click model and becoming more partisan and more extreme in their and both on left and and on the right and what that does is they then are suddenly hooked in and also social media allows academics and journalists to exchange ideas more easily. And so suddenly these, these concepts that were on campus migrate off campus. Now, there have been some new ones like trans, but I think the key mechanism is much more that sociological one of the kind of academia media barrier being broken. I don't think smartphone usage and that sort of thing is really the accelerant. I think it, I mean, it's, it's a factor, but I think it's much more sociological. And so the and actually, if you look at the origins of those ideas in academia, they, you know, critical race theory goes back to people in, you know, the Black Panther movement saying the U.S. Constitution is just a smokescreen for slavery. I mean, these ideas are quite old. Uh, they get quite a foothold already by the 70s and 80s. So I just think what we're seeing is a scaling up, a quantification of ideas that have been there yeah. certainly since the late 60s. And I don't place as much emphasis on uh, something like smartphone development. I, I think I agree with your general uh, premise. Right. Uh, do you think that there is a, a future where the reality of the lopsidedness in terms of you know uh, all the studies that have been done looking at the distribution of Democrats to Republicans or liberals to conservatives in academia, could we look into a crystal ball and see a future where that is less lop lopsided or is there something that is endemic to academia that says that you're never going to improve on whatever we have right now. Yeah, I mean, we've seen this shift from about, about one and a half on the left to one on the right across all universities from the top to the bottom in the mid-60s to about six to one. Today, and of course, in the social sciences and humanities and top universities, it's like 14, 15 to one. And uh, in some disciplines, excuse me for interrupting, yeah. you can have 130 yeah. to one. <laughs> right, like, Yeah. right. Uh, now, of course, the, the the problem is we've seen this in journalism as well. It's gone from one and a half to one to about five to one. So very similar to academia. And now we're seeing it in law and medicine. And we're even seeing in corporate donations a similar trend, particularly tech firms. So I think what's partly what's happening is we have this new set of values, which I call cultural socialism, which um, people who are young or who are highly educated or who are on the far left are buying into and as these people enter into companies and organizations like the new york times they're bringing or publishing houses they bring these values with them i'll give you an example from some surveys i've run you know should james demore the google engineer have been fired for issuing his memo internal to a company on on the gender policy is something like two-thirds of 18 to 25s in britain and america support the firing of james demore compared to to a third of those over 50. 
another question is, should um, J.K. Rowling be dropped by her publisher? I mean, in Britain, it's amongst the 18 to 25s, it's 50-50. Yes, she should be dropped. No, she shouldn't. Over 50s, it's like 85 to 5. So we and, so we have this young, this new new generations coming in, which, which are just vastly more culturally socialist than older generations. And it's hitting academia pretty hard, but it's also hitting a lot of other professions. But is that is that a reflection of being young and therefore those that bent is simply more alluring to me when I'm a lobotomized young fool, <laughs> but then I grow out of it. So therefore what you just said, I could have taken a snapshot a hundred years ago and would have found the same thing. Or are you saying there's something in the water today that makes the young more likely to succumb to cultural socialism? I'm afraid I think it's the latter, which is why I always say that uh, I think there's no blip here. This is not something that's going to fade away. It's only going to grow stronger. We're only at the beginning of a, of a process. So, for example, there have been a number of studies that ask the same question, have been asking the same questions since the 1970s. Um, so the General Social Survey asks about should a racist be allowed to speak a militarist, a, a homosexual, a communist? And generally, the young were always more tolerant than the old, even on letting a racist speak. That started to change, starting in the sort of 80s, 90s, turns around and now it's completely gone the other way, only for that one category, racist. So anything to do with race, gender, sexuality is now in a wholly different category from any other type of speaker. There's There was a study done of uh, at Smith College asking about free speech attitudes, you know, something like, you, you know, you should all, the definition of free speech being you should listen to points you, dis, you disagree with. That's, again, the same 18-year-olds in 19, even in 2000, if I can remember correctly, it was 2000 versus 2016. In 2000, 70% were pro-free speech, and that had dropped to 47% on it. the exact same question, the exact same age group. So I think, unfortunately, this is not just an age thing people are going to grow out of. I think it's baked into the generational cake. Do you think, so one of the things that I've been, I mean, I talked about it in, in the parasitic mind, but since I've gone on a Actually, if you remember at the Stanford conference that we were at together, I talked about the ontological versus consequentialist ethics. I picked up on that theme again at on an uh, at an event at USC a couple of weeks ago, where boy were they hostile to me. It was unbelievable. Uh, I so saw maybe, that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'll just, I mean, I know you know the distinction, and some of our listeners and viewers will know it. But for those who are joining us for the first time, let me mention it again because I. I truly think that something is happening where a greater number of young people are becoming consequentialists for reasons that are difficult to understand. So deontological ethics is 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 navigates an absolute truth. So if I say it is never okay to lie, that will be a deontological statement. If I say it is okay to lie, for example, to spare someone's feelings, well, then that would be a consequentialist statement. And for many, many things, it makes perfect sense to be a consequentialist, but there are a set of principles, a set of pursuits that by definition have to be deontological. The pursuit of truth should be deontological. Freedom of speech should be deontological. Some ju judicial principles such as presumption of innocence should be deontological. There is no, I believe in presumption of innocence, but fill in the dot. So do you, do you clearly it's the case that many young people are succumbing to a consequentialist ethos in domains that where they should be deontological. 
so first, if you agree with that, then why is that happening? Is it because universities are pushing the the minimization of hurt feelings over the pursuit of truth? What's driving that shift from places where you should be deontological to becoming consequentialist? Well, yeah, I, I sort of divide the map into cultural socialists versus cultural liberals. The cultural liberals are about uh, objective truth, due process, free speech, all the things we sort of agree on. Cultural socialists, it's about equality of outcome for historically marginalized race, gender, sexual identity groups, and uh, protection, including emotional protection of those groups. So if those are your top values, it's all about emotional safety and it's all about equal outcomes, then that's going to be that's going to trump any kind of free speech or, or truth based order. I mean, it's interesting because as you were speaking there, I was thinking of another study which is talking about how young people used to be morally relativist and they're now morally absolutist. So they've gone from sort of this idea that they there can be competing truths to know there's absolute right or wrong. Interestingly, so the the younger people now are much more are less likely than people without a degree yeah. to say, oh no, there's absolute right or wrong, right? So they become actually more morally absolutist. And this is, I think, behind some of the increasing intransigence over these values. But the 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 moral absolutism that you're speaking of is not an epistemological one. It's a dogmatic one, right? Right, right? You, right. Don't say that men cannot bear children. That's an absolutely false statement, right? I mean, I'm I'm right. mimicking what they say. I'm, that's exactly actually what happened to me at USC, where people literally said, one person said that uh, my my speech it it makes perfect sense for it to be regulated by the government. And when I said, "Well, what do you mean? Give me an example." Well, the example that he pulled out was. When I say something as dangerous and as divisive and as corrosive as men can get pregnant, that would be a good example of right. So, so I, so you're right that they are being quote moral absolutists, but about content specific statements, not about because the same people are also postmodernists, which is epistemologically relativist. There is no truth. Who who are you to say what truth is? Right. I mean, do, do you see the distinction? Yeah, yeah. I th I think you've got you're you're on an important distinction, and and but I think it's the same with postmodernism. <laughs> I think they're selective postmodernists. So right, if you if you really take postmodernism seriously, you could look at a statue of General Lee and say, well, the meaning of General Lee is in the eye of the beholder. So actually, you think it's racist? I think it's not racist. A, you know. But they don't take that view. It's very much no, no. This is the meaning. It's not postmodernist. Uh, so I think they're very selective. It's just if it reinforces these two, you know, the care, harm, and equality foundations. To use John, Jonathan Haidt's terminology, that's really what drives them. And all the other stuff is, I think, uh, they, whatever intellectual somersaults they need to do to to sort of reinforce this idea of the dominant majority is bad and then the, and the oppressed minority is good. I mean, that's their sort of driving force. Do you, since, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, some longitudinal sort of big data stuff, it, this is not necessarily big data, but maybe more anecdotally, uh, we both belong to this email list of, I don't know how many, 30, 40, 50 professors who, you know, seem to fit the quote dissident mold. Is that, does that embolden you in that you feel that 
five or ten years ago, there would have only been six people on that list. <laughs> uh, are, are we are we going to see from fifty to five hundred next month, or do you think we've we've reached a critical mass of free thinkers and it's never going to grow beyond that? That's a really interesting question. I mean, I do think you're right that <clears throat> there's a lot been a lot of exciting ferment formation of new organizations. Uh, you know, found a FAIR and and, and there've been. Um, there's a lot of exciting things happening. So I think that is growing and there is mobilization. And I, and I, and, and I'm sure yourself have gained, we've, we've drawn a lot of sucker from uh, these, these movements. I mean, I have to say the free speech union in Britain, I've had, you know, multiple Twitter mobbings and internal investigations and all of these things. What I would say is that the backup now is so much more effective, the online and the organizational uh, backup. And I think that gives gives people a lot more sort of psychological support. So I think it's extremely important. Now, do I think that's going to change the game? I don't. Unfortunately, I think there's just not enough muscle behind that minority to be able to really overturn the system, partly because I don't think actually that most academics silently even support us. I mean, I think some of them do, and they most academics don't support canceling and firing but most academics do support something like diversity statements. So about 60% in the social sciences and humanities and the top universities would support diversity statements. More of them would support affirmative action than would oppose it for reading lists. So race and gender quotas for reading lists would get more support than opposition on a survey. So this isn't sticking your neck out. This is just a, an anonymous survey. So I think actually it's going to be very difficult from within the academy or within the theater or publishing to be able to affect these changes. And, and that's one of the reasons I think that what Ron DeSantis is doing, what we're seeing, I don't agree a hundred percent, but I think ultimately the change, at least in terms of making institutions line up with the law on yeah. academic freedom or line up with the law on equal treatment, that's going to have to come from outside the, uh, the institution. Yeah. So let, I want to come back uh, to Ron DeSantis in a second, but so here's a theory that I've floated around uh, in, in various settings. Let me push it to you. Let me uh, mention it to you. So if you're if you're a if you're looking for a, a model, uh, then you're looking for certain morphological features uh, because you're hopefully going to choose someone who's very attractive. If you're looking for a soccer player, they better be able to be fit and run fast and so on. If you're looking for Navy SEALs, they need to be physically fit, courageous, and so on. In academia, we may choose people who, you know, we'd like to think have high IQs, are well-educated, but we certainly don't select academics to be what I call intellectual Navy SEALs, right? Which is right. To, to be combative. Combative not for not in a cantankerous way. Not you, you can be combative while having a smile on your face. You could be a smiling assassin, mm -hmm. right? So most <laughs> academics... And I, I say this using my GAD colorful language because I think it's a it's a powerful way to communicate. I call them, you know, there, there's a there's a, a a new species that we've uncovered in academics, and they're called they they're invertebrate castrati. They <laughs> they don't have a spine, and they don't have testicles, irrespective of whether they're <laughs> men or women. So that even yeah. if we pick the quote. And I don't mean to belittle anybody who's on the email list. Even if we pick people who we 
are supposedly on the side of the ontological principles and so on. If you go into the trenches with them, they would be sucking their thumb in a fetal position, crying while watching Bridget Jones' diary. Whereas I think to effect change, you have to be a Navy SEAL. You have to be larger than life in, in the sense of let's let's fight it out so I can be very loving and very warm in my personal interactions, but I also can be very unforgiving when someone attacks me and so on. Do, do you think that that might be one of the fundamental problems of why we can't re redress the problem? Because you need certain traits in, in in the one group that is going to stand up and fight that they simply don't possess. Yeah, I think I think you're right that the people who do stand out, who do stick their neck out, clearly are contrarians and, and have those character traits that you mentioned. I guess, however, I, I, I'm not 100% sure that there's more willingness to def defy convention in other sectors like the corporate world or even the police force. I, I, I think some of the things that you see coming out of the police, uh, in, certainly in Britain, you know, some of the uh, <laughs> prosecution for speech or not prosecution, but certainly the policing of speech, you know, there's very little pushback. I, I So partly this is where I'm, I always look to sort of institutional incentives because I don't think you can rely on human nature to really to do this. I, I think it's going to have to take some kind of changing of the landscape of incentives uh, in order to sort of allow dissenters, more dissenters to come out, because most people aren't going to be willing to pay that kind of a price, or they don't have the fortitude, or they don't actually, maybe unlike you, they may not have a good sense of what is, you know, gee, someone's saying that you've erased my identity. Maybe they're right. You know, they may not know the arguments. They may not have a sense of their convictions. Um, so this is one of the reasons I think that the impact of uh, government policy, I mean, elected governments reforming institutions through some of the things that DeSantis is doing, for example, like banning DEI. Um, uh, Britain has a higher education freedom bill, which I've been involved with, with which uh, uh, essentially will allow the regulator to fine universities that are not upholding and promoting academic freedom. Now, some people don't like that approach, but I think, unfortunately, in, in the situation we're in now, you've got to be able to sort of change the incentives for these administrators. Otherwise, you're, I don't think you're going to get anywhere. Uh, and that's it's sad, but I, I've come to that conclusion. But I, so I, I think what you're basically saying is that the default value of of humans, of human nature, is to be cowardly, apathetic, fence sitter, and therefore what you're saying is you need a nudge mechanism through some institutional mechanism that allows us to come out from the stupor of, you know, coward, cowardice, and apathy. Correct. Yeah, yeah, I think it's easier for the president of a university to say to a group of, you know, pink, blue and pink haired protesters to say, I'd love to do what you want me to do, but we, we would get fined or we'd have we'd wind up in court or we can't do it because of regulation X. Right. I think that that allows the president to give them that excuse and therefore not have to face their wrath. Uh, I think that's a more realistic solution than to expect the president to say, no, you're wrong, free speech, etc. I, I just think there just aren't enough 
Navy SEALs to to, to do that. Right. I'm afraid. <laughs> right. Okay. So let's let's turn into uh, well, I guess he wasn't a Navy SEAL, but I think he was in the Navy. You mentioned. Ron DeSantis, he was in the Navy, correct? Is that what he, what he was? I, I think he was in the military. Yeah, I don't remember exactly. Yeah, which one? Okay. So uh, did you see recently, I'm sure you did, uh, you know, the sort of what many would consider to be a, a fundamental attack on the, the principle of, or the mechanism of tenure and so on. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think he's gone too far with the, you know, five-year review? Whatever. Tell us what you think. Yeah, I, I do think he's gone too far. I, I mean, I think that he's made, they've gone, they've made some mistakes, which perhaps you can understand since this is all new territory. But I think tenure actually allows dissidents a certain amount of security. So you're actually making it easier to for universities to cancel uh, free thinkers. So I think it's a terrible idea to get rid of tenure. Um, in terms of other things, I also don't think you can ban ideas, however awful they are, and they are awful. I, I don't think you should be banning critical race theory in universities. Um, I do think, however, that you what you could do is to say uh, universities must flag all courses in critical race theory uh, with like a cigarette health warning label, and we won't fund those programs. Now, you can still offer them. Universities can still teach them, but they would have to cross-subsidize them from other parts of the university. I think that's perfectly legitimate, and I think it would pass uh, legal scrutiny. But I don't think you should be banning ideas, because as we know, some of these banned ideas could turn out to be the right ones. Yeah, right. I, I mean, I think Hungary took that approach, right, where they... Uh... Uh, if I, I'm not sure if they banned or whether they stopped funding, which effectively can mean roughly the same ultimate thing, things like women's studies and all that kind of stuff. Are you familiar with their? I approach? think they banned it. I they, actually oh, they think banned they, it. Okay. I think they banned it. Um, yeah, and that's straight up illiberalism. I yeah. wouldn't wouldn't support that. I, I think, uh, you know, I mean, government. You know, it's it's pretty common for governments to defund, say, forces that are not whose graduates aren't earning much money or in Australia, they've, they're paying a lot less for people to do humanities. I mean, those are decisions democratically elected governments can take in terms of their budgets. Uh, but I think to ban ideas, I think is a, uh, that's not something I think is, is in, you know, in tune with classical liberalism. Yeah, exactly. And I, and as you know, I think I might've mentioned in the Stanford talk, uh, the way that I demonstrate my commitment to, you know, an absolutist ethos on freedom of speech, <laughs> I support the right of Holocaust deniers to spew their nonsense. And so there's almost nothing that you could think of that is more offensive. And yet, if you're going to be a free speech absolutist, that's the test case, right? Yeah, I, I completely agree, even though, you know, without my uh, you know, grandparents escaping, I wouldn't be here, right? So, yeah. <laughs> right. You said earlier, by the way, speaking of yeah. that, you said earlier, you're sort of Jewish, meaning that I think your dad is Jewish, right? Yeah, my dad's Jewish, yes. Right. Now, he, I, I as I was preparing for our uh, conversation, I I you know went to your you could Wikipedia page and I saw that your dad has his own Wikipedia entry and apparently he's this incredible polyglot. Is that the the, the right way to right? So he's, yeah. But what right. is the difference between a polyglot and just a person who is multilingual? Is it is it just it's it's multilingual on on uh, on steroids? I think that's right. I think that is more or less the the, the only distinction there. So yeah, he's. Uh, He's as, as polyglot as I'm not. So, you know, <laughs> are, are you just you only speak English? Well, I, a bit of French, you know, but it's it's uh, nowhere near what he's got. 
So, <laughs> and and ha, do you have you ever discussed with him what what is the specific architecture of his human mind that makes him so receptive to being able to? And I mean, he's not just learning, you know, Spanish, French, yeah. and Portuguese, which are part of the same family of Romance knowledge. <laughs> he's 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 learning, you know, I don't know, I think it was Mandarin and Japanese, and I mean. Uh, oh yeah, I mean he's spoken those for a long time, and and he's now getting into sort of Turkish and Farsi and all. So yeah, I mean it's <laughs> he's got a talent for this, um, you know. And I think it's when you pick up a certain amount. There's there's a my sense is that there's a certain network effect where you kind of or or where you kind of once you've got a certain number of languages, you get a method, and then you can sort okay. of learn another one and another one. Um, as near as I can figure. Has he uh, has he gone towards the Arabic and Hebrew? Uh, he's, I think, I don't know. I think he's dabbled in Arabic. I, I, I'm not sure which language. He seems to have a different language on the go each month. So, <laughs> wow. Well, one of my, my only, do you have children, Eric? Yes, I got two, uh, two who are, I guess they're now 19 and 23, so... Oh wow! Uh, yeah. Well, uh, my mine are a bit younger, and uh, I I tell people that my only parental regret thus far, may it be the only one, uh, is that we haven't passed on. Uh, we meaning my wife and I haven't passed on our rich linguistic heritage, <laughs> our children. So I I I speak four languages: you know, French, English, Arabic, Hebrew. And my wife speaks French, English, and Armenian by virtue of being Lebanese Armenian. Uh, and so between the two of us, we have five languages covered, and yet our children only speak French and English, which, okay, is better than only English. But uh, it really, really hurts me uh, to think that, you know, they don't have all these languages. Now, in our case, it was a very uh, pragmatic, you know, very mundane reason why this happened. Because my wife doesn't speak Arabic or Hebrew, if I spoke to them in those languages, then she'd be locked out. If she spoke <laughs> to them in Armenian, then I'd be locked out. So we ended up taking the the easy and regrettable decision of just speaking <laughs> to them in languages that we both understood. Uh, do your children speak more than one or are they the typical kind of slash American? I think they're, t I mean, yeah, we're, we're, I'm in London though. So yeah, they're I know, actually, I know. but, but yeah, they, they know, I think it's English, although they're learning, they both have an interest in Spanish. So, you know, that's interesting. Um, so maybe they can converse uh, with, with my parents or certainly with my dad um, and, and in a way that I won't understand. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. uh, your, your father grew up in Montreal, right? He did. He did. He was from NDG and uh, look at that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you know, you know the, you know, you know Montreal well. Not well. I mean, I have been there, but uh, I mean, I know where the English-French divide used to be. Right. Uh, was it? You know. <laughs> um, of course, when he was living there, it was much more. You know, the politics of René Levesque and all of that. You know, that was just after Expo '67. Actually, I think he left. Um, but it was then in that period when all the Anglo's were leaving. Or not all, but many of them. Um, yeah, yeah, well, the the current uh, premier of Quebec is also quite linguistically, you know, motivated. Uh, many people don't understand that some of the draconian, I mean, almost laughable rules that Quebec has to try to ensure that its linguistic heritage is is protected. Is is this something that uh, you have an opinion on? Yeah, I I do think you're right that 
you know, the sign laws, the Bill yeah. 101, all that stuff is, in my view, was unnecessary and, you know, emotionally, you know, it, it's not sound policy. However, I'm kind of torn on Quebec because they are now the the only sane part of Canada. Um, <laughs> so, um, so I think it may have driven them down one road in the sort of 1960s, but somehow it's insulated them from the the mind virus, as you call it, uh, to a greater extent. So maybe they'll be the salvation of the country. I have no idea. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, all right. What are some, uh, as we wrap it up, what, of course, I could talk to you for another five hours. Uh, what are some projects that you're currently working on that you'd like to perhaps use this opportunity to promote or discuss? Take it away. Well, yeah, like you, uh, you mentioned you have a book you've just wrapped up and I've got a book I'm just about to wrap up as well, uh, which should be out in the summer or in January uh, on this theme of cultural socialism. But a lot of it is about how the the race taboo, the anti-racism taboo emerged in the mid 60s in the US and how in a way everything that we're living through is in some way an extension and expansion of that taboo. And because there was never a proper guardrail and a, and a proper way of creating a proportional taboo rather than a sort of black and white one, uh, so much of what we're living through is really the, the aftershock of that event. Um, and I think one of the big challenges is gonna be how do we tame that? Um, but also the book is gonna try, and you know, a lot of these books talk about how awful things are and i'm i'm really trying to sort of talk through in more detail what we can do in policy terms to try and turn the ship around um so yeah that that book is going to be out as i say in the summer or in january and that's the main been my main focus i've also done a few think tank reports with the manhattan institute and policy exchange in britain on just how extensively critical race and gender theory has penetrated into secondary schools so it's Something like 93% of American uh, 18 to 20 year olds were taught in school about one of six or seven concepts like white privilege, patriarchy, et cetera. So the penetration rate in the schools is really great. And it really has a big impact on attitudes. People who've been exposed to more of this critical social justice instruction in schools are much more likely to uh, support white guilt affirmative action to to be democrats so this really matters i mean the socialization of the next generation and so schooling and education i think certainly for conservative politics has to become a much bigger priority do you think that speaking about sort of pushing back against some of the indoctrination in uh, in uh, you know earlier education and by the way i recently had the uh, uh uh, the authors of uh, Stolen Youth, which basically looks at exactly the penetration okay. that you're speaking about, uh, the indoctrination of children. You know, it used to be that, you know, someone like me would weigh in on how the older students are being in parasitized and indoctrinated. But as we know, uh, ideologues want to get to your children as early as possible because that's when they don't have the cognitive mechanisms to counter argue against yourself. That's when I can really indoctrinate them. Uh, so any any thoughts about uh, have you read that book do you know that book i haven't i, I i'm gonna have to read it i i just i oh, haven't yeah. It's, yeah it's right up your alley it's uh okay carol uh markowitz and uh bethany mandela i hope i haven't, I haven't okay. gotten either names wrong yeah i'll find it up but yeah. uh yeah i'll definitely oh, yeah. check it out because yeah that's ex i think this is really because once you 
you know, I've already said that younger people are a lot more woke. Um, we we know that university doesn't change opinion that much in either, either direction. The big changes I'm convinced are happening before they set foot on campus. And so education policy is going to play a big role in determining who the next generation of voters are. Um, and I think that's something we have to get quite serious about. Now, in Britain, there you know there is a law that says you cannot politically indoctrinate in school. That law is being flouted, broken, etc. The Conservative government was asleep at the wheel. They kind of late in the day put in some guidance on what impartiality should mean. It was full of holes. It hasn't made a damn difference. That is something that I, I think is going to have to be tightened up a lot, um, including in the inspection regimes for schools. Um, so yeah, this is a whole area of policy that just needs a lot more attention. Do you think just to, to, to wrap up this conversation and then we'll, mm-hmm. we'll say goodbye, do you think that activists, parents have a, a an important, I mean, yes, of course they have a role, but do you think right. that they, they might serve as the catalysts of change uh, in the way that uh, is discussed in the book that I just mentioned earlier, or maybe, you know, for example, Astra Nomani, who, who has been at the forefront of that. Do, so do you think that it's going to be parental honey badgering that's going to sort of, uh, stop some of this indoctrination from taking place? I think in jurisdictions that are run by progressives, you know, like the blue states of the U.S., much of Canada, uh, then yes, it's going to have to fall to parents locally uh, to try and defend against it to the greatest extent they can. However, in, say, red states in the U.S., uh, or perhaps when there's a conservative government in Britain, you can actually put pressure on the government to try and sort of institute a lot of these changes. Uh, I actually think that's more long lasting and effective, but if you don't have that, yeah, you've got to go local only. Beautiful. Uh, Eric, such a pleasure talking to you. Please stay on the line so we could say goodbye offline properly. Okay. It's a pleasure. You're welcome. Anytime to return. Uh, real delight talking to you. Thank you so much. Thanks, God. That's great. Cheers. Cheers. All right.